God is good. Amen. Amen. And you know what? I am just excited and thrilled to be able to speak this morning. Um, I've been excited about what God has been just laying on my own heart. And, and I think it's something that we can uh, take to heart ourselves, that God's word is timeless and amazingly so, that the things that were written thousands of years ago still can apply to us today. And there are practical, meaty truths in Scripture which can continue to guide us as we navigate life. And so with that being said, I want you to take your Bibles or get into your Bible apps, and I want you to head to 1 John chapter 1. Now, 1 John is one of the last books of the, of the New Testament. Don't go to the Old Testament. Go to the New Testament. So if you flip to the very end of your Bible and start heading back from there, you'll find it. So Revelation, and then go back a little further, and you get to Jude and Third John and Second John, and then ultimately First John. And First John is said to be one of the last books that was actually written. So it's it's written kind of at the end of that first century. And over the past several weeks, I found myself reading this this book, this letter that John wrote over and over again. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, I have found such wonderful truths that apply to my life, and I think they apply to all of our lives today. So before we begin to read the letter, I want to take a few minutes to set the stage for this letter, because I think that helps us get a little bit of context for what John's trying to say and to not only his first century readers, but to us as well. And so hopefully we'll be able to see some parallels between their lives and our lives. So most scholars believe that John wrote this letter in the late first century, probably between 80 and 90 AD, somewhere in there. Um, And at the time he wrote this, John would have been the sole remaining survivor of the apostles. Like if if that was a game show or a reality show, he would have been the sole survivor, right? So all of his friends who had walked with Jesus and had been with him have been martyred for their faith. They've been, they had kind of gone across the globe and they had each one been killed for their faith. And now 50 to 60 years after Jesus walked on the earth, John is an old man. He has kind of this grandfatherly standing and he's the last apostle standing. And so he's witnessed many things over the course of his life. He witnessed Jesus the Messiah in the flesh. He walked with him for three, three and a half years and he saw all that Jesus did. And since Jesus then ascended into heaven, he's witnessed the birth of the church and what the church has become in that amount of time. It's, you know, if we look back at now the span of history, you know, they were kind of like a baby organization. They were kind of an infant group of of followers, and they're trying to get things figured out and settled in their own minds. And during this time, he himself, as well as others, have faced persecution and hardship for their faith. And now as an old man with years of experience, John is observing some issues that the church is facing. On one hand, the church is dealing with persecution and oppression. From the beginning of the church, the Jewish religious leaders had opposed the teachings and practices of Christians. I mean, think about it. They killed Jesus. They were the ones who didn't like what Jesus was standing for, and so they killed him. And so then his followers, after Jesus was gone, became their new targets, and they were trying to squash them. They had persecuted Christians through beating, 
through imprisoning and even killing them. In addition, it wasn't just from the Jewish religious leaders, but they faced oppression from the Roman government. Just in some of the few years prior to John writing this letter, Nero, the emperor of Rome, had tortured and killed Christians because their practices conflicted with a lot of the the worship practices of that day. Emperor worship or some of the pagan rituals. And a lot of what Christians were doing and how they were living their lives just, in a sense, seemed weird. And so they must be weird and, and bad people. So we need to squash them out. So with all of that, remember that John is the only remaining apostle from the original 12. All of his friends have been murdered for their faith, and he himself had been beaten and tortured. So that's one side of what John is is thinking about. He's also seeing that there are some rising issues within the church itself. Issues which could completely derail and destroy this infant organization, the church, if they're not addressed. And as the church developed in its teaching and testimony, there were some people called Gnostics. Now, Gnostics were people who had begun to mix the the philosophy of the day with mysticism or spiritual experiences. And as they did so, and because of the experiences that they had, they asserted that they had received a special revelation from God. That this was something new that came after Jesus, but they had received it. And so because of this revelation, they, in their own minds, felt that they had greater authority, that they had a a special status within the kingdom of God as compared to other Christ followers. Unfortunately, this led them to have some weird beliefs and some false views about Jesus Christ himself, about sin, about the body and the soul, and, and all that it encompassed, the whole person. And they began to spread these false teachings in and around the church so that it caused people, these followers of Christ, this baby organization, to be uncertain of their faith and their status in the kingdom of God. So, against this backdrop of issues the church faced, the Apostle John, again, an elderly man, kind of having this grandfatherly status, he writes this letter to the church at large to reassure them about their faith and what they're standing for. He wants to establish certainty in their hearts and in their minds and their souls by reminding them of the fundamentals of their faith, the basics of being a Christ follower. So with that frame of reference, let's look at 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to read the first four verses. And John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be complete. Now, that is quite the opening to a letter. I mean, imagine if you receive this letter and that's how it starts. John doesn't even take time to introduce himself. He doesn't even say, hey guys, I just want to write this to you. He just dives right in. 
He has something that is so burning on his heart and his mind that he needs to put pen to paper and write these things right away, right from the get-go to this church, to the churches at large. And he just plunges right into the message that he is inspired to deliver to the church. He starts and he says, that which was from the beginning. As John begins to write, he takes his readers, both then and now, to the one who has been from the beginning. Jesus, the word, the life, was from the beginning. And not just from the beginning, but he existed already when our concept of time began. Right? So we say time started here, and Jesus already was. And he was already in place in time, or in place when time, the universe, and all of creation began. And as a believer, it is imperative that we understand that Jesus, the Son of God, is eternal. He didn't just start at one point. He has been just like the Father from eternity. He has always been, he is now, and he always will be. And because of the Gnostics spreading false teachings about Christ, John needed his readers to be certain about who Jesus was. Like Jesus, yes, he was a man who lived on earth, but he was divine and he has always been. And then John goes on to describe Jesus further, and he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Not only was he from the beginning, not only was he from eternity past, but Jesus left his heavenly throne and he came in the flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and bones, skin and hair, head and shoulders, knees and toes. Knees and toes, right? He came in a body to live among humanity and experience the same kinds of things that we all experienced. So sometimes it can be hard for us to wrap our minds around this, but Jesus, the Son of God, was birthed here on earth like all of us were birthed. We came out of a woman at one point in time. He learned to walk. He learned to talk. He learned to eat. He learned to make friends. He learned how to play with them. And he went walking around the villages as everyone else did. He, he learned about daily life. And he went to weddings. And he, he experienced those things that can be precious to us. And sometimes they're the necessities for us. And as the sole remaining apostle, John is compelled to emphasize that Jesus was man in the flesh. From the day he was born, to the day he was crucified and died, to the day he rose from the dead, and to the day that he ascended back into heaven to sit on his heavenly throne, Jesus was man in the flesh. He was the Son of God, and he was man at the same time. And John could speak as an expert eyewitness to all of these things. He had a very real and personal association with Jesus throughout his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And what John was writing about was not some cute or elaborate fairy tale. It wasn't a once upon a time, blah, blah, blah. This was real. And he personally experienced these things. He could speak as a first-rate eyewitness. He knew Jesus, the Son of God, who had come in the flesh. He is writing about the one whom he has heard. That's his first description. Think about that. 
Jesus took on lips and mouth and vocal cords so that he could be audibly heard. Just as you are hearing me today, even if you're trying to tune me out, you are still hearing me just like they, John heard Jesus back then. He heard him with his own ears, his teachings, his words of forgiveness and healing, and his routine conversations. And then, by taking on flesh and bones in human form, Jesus was seen. He was visible to the disciples and all those who followed and even just came to just, hey, I want to see what's going on. He could see them. Just like you can see me right now with your own eyes, they were seeing Jesus in the flesh at that time. They saw him eat. They saw him sleep. They saw him fish with them. They saw him ride on a donkey. They saw him walk all over the regions of Galilee and Judea and interact with different people. Not only was he visible, but John takes it a step further and says, which we looked upon. Not only could you see him, but you could kind of just like behold him. You could gaze upon him and think about him and and really process all that he was doing. They could see that he was healing people and that he was ministering to people. And not only was he doing that, but think about if you were to observe those things, you just kind of sit back and you might be in awe and wonder and just in amazement. Like, I'm, I'm processing all these things because this is tangible to me right here and right now. They could see what he was doing, hear what he, what he was saying, and they could process in their minds what they saw and heard. And because he took on flesh and bones, John and others were actually able to touch him. They could tangibly feel that he was real. Like he had skin and bones and he was there. John, you know, he writes in his gospel that he had laid his head against Jesus at the Last Supper, the night before Jesus died. Think about Simeon and Anna when Jesus was first born and they brought him to the temple. They held baby Jesus, flesh and bones. It wasn't just like a figment of their imagination. They held him like you hold your own child or a nephew, or a niece, or a grandchild. Think of the woman who had the issue of blood and had been bleeding for 12 years. She came and touched the hem of his garment. Like it was legitimately real. He he could touch it. Thomas was given the opportunity to touch the holes in Jesus' hands after his resurrection. So again, John needs his readers, the church, to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that he came to earth to dwell among us and ultimately to die on our behalf. This Jesus, the word, the life, not only existed from the beginning, but he has been made manifest to us, the church and his followers. John and the other apostles have seen him. They have heard him. They have touched him. They've interacted with him. And now John testifies and proclaims this truth and of this truth, we can be certain. This is the very foundation of the gospel message. And we, even now in the 21st century, we need to be certain of this, that Jesus was the Son of God, and yet he came to earth in the flesh. He dwelled among us, so he knows how it is. For in the season of difficulty and perhaps crisis that the first century followers found themselves, And in the seasons of craziness and chaos that we can find ourselves now in the 21st century, we need to grasp the truth and eternity and the certainty of the gospel message. The word of life, 
the eternal Son of God, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And to that I say, Amen. Right? Praise the Lord that Jesus came in the flesh. Now, rather than simply reminding his readers of this magnificent truth, which is pretty awesome in and of itself, John is very strategic about why he's doing so. In fact, he states two reasons right here in his opening for doing this. Look back at verse 3 for a moment. He says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So that you too may have fellowship with us. Because John and the other apostles had walked with Jesus, they had literal, physical relationship with him. Like, as we said, they could see him, hear him, touch him, all of those things. But John, in a sense here, is saying that the physical fellowship is not the thing of greatest importance. Because obviously his readers then, and especially us now, we cannot have that tangible, visible audible relationship with Christ like the, like the disciples did. Rather, John has proclaimed and declared this short statement of faith because he wants us to be able to share the experience that he and the other apostles and followers had. More than just a physical fellowship, they experienced something life-transforming through their belief in Jesus the Christ. And he desperately desires all readers of this letter to experience the same thing. John is, in a way, saying, I have found the truth. It's not a hypothesis. It's not an opinion. It is objective truth, and I want you to find this truth as well. I want you to experience the life and the salvation that Jesus has provided. This is a certainty for all of us. It is something that we can stand on. Like, we don't have to worry about it being wobbly or shaky. It is firm. It is solid. It is there for us to stand on. And as believers, we share in this. We share something in common. It is for all of us. There are no tears. There are no classes. There are no castes within the kingdom of God. We all share the same experience in Christ, his saving, transforming, life-giving work in our lives. We all receive the same gift of salvation from God. It doesn't depend on our intelligence, our wealth, our health, our career, our race, our gender, or any other thing that we might try to divide ourselves on. None of that matters in God's eyes. It is for all of us. So the salvation that comes through Jesus is for every single one of us. You and I may not have seen or heard Jesus with our own eyes and ears, but we can have the same experience of his grace and salvation in our lives. And at the end of verse 3, he goes on to say, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Not only do we share the same experience of life and salvation with our fellow believers, but we, all believers, also have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Prior to sin entering the world, think about it. Adam and Eve had loving fellowship with the Father. They walked in the garden together. They talked together. They were able to interact in just a free flow of communication with the Father in their pre-sin status. But then, 
When they sin, sin became a barrier between us and God. For God is holy, right? We lost that ongoing relationship with the Father. But because Jesus the Christ came to earth, took on human form, dwelt among us, was crucified and buried, and then rose again, he made the way for us, all of us, to have restored relationship with the Father. That's why many of us are here today. We now can have that relationship with the Father. We can go through life with him. He removed the barrier between us, so now the very thing that we had lost because of sin has now been restored to us as believers. We now as believers have this fellowship with the Father and the Son because we have been given new lives. I always love how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have a new life, a new person, a new nature that we've been given. One that has been shaped according to the character of the Father. And I like to think of it that it's almost this new thing that has come. It's completely a new spiritual DNA. And this DNA that's been put into us comes from the Father, and it has his character markers in it. And as we nourish that through Jesus the Christ, this DNA has been placed within us when we believe on him, and it continues to reproduce and spread in our character as we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Just as our cells grow and regenerate, this spiritual DNA within us, as we abide with him, will continue to grow and develop and and take more, I'll say, root in our lives. That DNA is nurtured and cultivated within us as we abide with him. And that's the beautiful thing. We now get to abide with him, unhindered, without a barrier, in freedom. We get to be with the Father. We get to share life with him. We get to share his life. As believers, we can become like him through the power of the Holy Spirit. We get to be with him. We get to do life together. So we share our life with him, and he shares his life, his perfect life, with us. And as we spend more time with him, we become like him more and more and more. Think about the people that you're good friends with, those that you hang around and associate with. Have you ever noticed that you begin to talk like them? That you start using the same words and phrases, maybe ones that you never used before? That you may make the same facial gestures or hand gestures? That you may get frustrated or excited at the same things? Maybe you even develop similar laughs. I notice that for myself, when I'm with different people, I may laugh in a different way. It's like this weird observation that I laugh like that person when I'm with them, but it's a completely different laugh here. Or I remember in high school when we had started a new church and I started to get involved with some of the guys in the youth group. And at that time, it was all like heavy metal, like Christian heavy metal. And so deliverance and vengeance and all these different bands And I had never been a metal guy. That was not my thing. And as time went on, I started to at least appreciate it a little bit more. I'm like, okay, I can deal with this for a little while. But it was not totally my thing. But then we'd have all these 
you have your phrases and your, your things that you say and, and, and the way that you talk about different people or, or things like that. You just become like the people that you associate it with. And so it is as we associate and abide with the Father. Right? We become more like him. And John proclaims these things about Jesus so that we can experience this. The same experience that all believers have in fellowship with the Father and the Son, we can be certain of this. And now we come to John's second purpose for plunging into the marvelous truth that Jesus came and dwelt among us. In verse 4 he writes, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John's earnest desire is that our joy would be complete, that it would be filled full, that our lives would be filled to the brim with the joy that comes through Jesus Christ. He writes later on in chapter 5, verse 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Yet, despite that being the reality that we live in, we can still experience joy. We can have joy even when the world is crazy and I might be the only sane one. You know, we, we have those feelings sometimes. We can still experience joy. And it's not just a minor joy, but it is a joy that is filled to the limit. We can be a container, in a sense, in our humanity of a joy that fills us to overflowing. And John wants this to be the case so earnestly for each believer. He wants them and he wants us to overcome the mixed up, crazy, broken world that we live in and have joy that is abundant. Not just a joy that is fleeting, not just a joy that is like a whim, joy that does not depend on our circumstances. Instead, I refer back to what Pastor Mark preached about last week, that we can experience joy as we contemplate our Lord Jesus. And that is essentially what John is saying for us to do. Think about what we've been testifying and proclaiming to you, and you can have joy, abundant joy. You can think about his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his position on the heavenly throne, and you can experience joy. Not just on Sunday morning for an hour, hour and 15 minutes, but you can experience it 24-7, 365, or 366 if it's a leap year. You can experience joy. Because let's be honest, the world around us is messed up. We look at the things around us and we're like, what in the world is going on? And if we look at it and all that's happening right now, we can easily fall into hopelessness, into despair, into anxiety, fear, and the list could go on and on forever, right? Yet John says that this is not how it should be for the believer. We shouldn't just plod on through life with a pained expression all the time. Like, why do you look so pained all the time? We ought not give off the vibe that being a Christian is an unhappy thing. I think... If you remember Winnie the Pooh, being a chronic Eeyore is not for the life of a believer. It is not a good and right thing for the believer to be. Ho-hum, Jesus save me, but that's all I've got. Right? Like, we're not supposed to do that. Now, I will say this. This doesn't mean that we don't experience life. Life happens And sometimes we have those moments where, 
oh my goodness, what, what am I going to do? We have those things. But when we can recenter and refocus, we can have that reality that God is on the throne and he is good. We don't have to just be lighthearted or live in la-la land because I'll say the other way is not good. Like, oh, everything is good. I like unicorns and rainbows. No, that's not what he's saying here either. Like, joy is something that is like a confident assurance of what we have. So as we fellowship with the Father and Son, we can have life in the midst of turmoil. Through Jesus, the one on whom we base our confidence and our trust, we can experience an ongoing, abundant joy. We can have this true abiding joy because our lives are based on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And because as believers, we have the opportunity to believe and abide with him, to be with him in our souls constantly. John's desire in writing about this is that our joy may be complete, that it may be filled to the full, that we can walk through each day with confidence of who we are and what we've got in Christ, and we can have joy. Now, I know I'm going to date myself a little bit, but back in the 80s, okay, whoa, Big hair, if you had it. Uh, there was a coffee company. I know. I got to stop that. Sorry. Um, back in the 80s, there was a company, a coffee company named Brim. Anyone remember that? Some of you may be like, I remember those commercials. They marketed decaf coffee. Their ad campaign was essentially fill it to the rim with Brim. Okay? The commercials would show person A who wanted a cup of coffee. But they only wanted it half full. Because while I love the rich taste of coffee, there's just too much caffeine. Today's day and age, you're like, half a cup? Are you insane? Right? Then person B, you know, they were the expert. They would explain that it was decaf coffee. So if they wanted the same rich taste, but not all the caffeine, they should drink some brim. And so then person A would respond, well then, I'll take a full cup, fill it to the rim with brim, you know, as only the cheesy 80 commercials could be, right? Fill it to the rim with brim. And as Christ followers, as those, so I'm going to bring it back, as those who have fellowship with the Father and the Son, it's similar for us. We could simply settle for a simple dose here and there of the joy that comes through Jesus, or we can say, And then take the corresponding action. Fill me to the full, Lord, with your presence and joy. I don't want just a little drop. I don't want to have just a smidge. I want to be filled to the limit. And as we look to him, as we behold him, as we walk with him, we will experience and see the joy that comes through Jesus the Christ. A joy that is like nothing else. So John's message to the first century church and to the 21st century church as well is a reminder that Jesus, the word of life, the eternal son of God, did in fact come to earth in the flesh and he dwelt among us. And because of this truth, this certainty that we have, we have a solid foundation for our faith. And we need to grasp this truth and hold on to it with everything that we have Don't just get the simple dose on Sunday morning. 
but have it day after day, hour after hour, week after week. And as we walk through our normal everyday lives, we can experience that. For when we can hold on to this truth, we will continually be assured of our status. We do not have to have any wavering. We do not have to have any doubt. All times, we can be assured of our status, that we have received God's grace and salvation, and that we have fellowship, a personal relationship with God once again, and that we can have joy, abundant joy, that carries us through whatever goes on in the world around us. We can say with confident assurance, I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and I live in the stable, unshakable kingdom of God. We can say that each and every day. We can know who we are, we can know where we are, and we can know what we've got as we base our lives on the truth and allow our abiding with him to continue so that our joy may be complete. Sounds good, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this certainty that we have in Christ Jesus. That not only have you existed from when time began and before that, but that you came, you left your heavenly throne, you came to earth, you took on human flesh, you dwelt among us, you lived, you ministered, you touched people's lives, you were crucified, you died, you were buried, you rose again. And now you've ascended into heaven to sit on your heavenly throne interacting for us. Thank you, Lord, for that truth. Thank you that you have done all of these things and that we can be not only just vaguely aware of them, but that we can now abide with you. That we can have fellowship with you knowing that we, like all believers, have received the same gift of salvation. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you allow us to have a joy that is unshakable and a joy that as we abide with you can become greater and greater till we are filled to the full. And Lord, I pray that you would just help us to seek after you in that way. That these words that we have talked about and looked at today would become real in our lives. That they would become something that just continues to well up within us. That as we leave this place later on today, you would reveal your truth even more that this afternoon we would hear from you and we would be able to abide with you. That tomorrow, as we go about our our weekday lives, you would speak to us and help us. That we would take the time to abide with you. That we would take the time to rest on the truth, the certainty that you have given us. And that we can have joy that is abundant and full. Thank you, Lord.
Lord, we just we we just pray that you would continue to guide us in all that we do. And this morning, I'm I'm going to ask that there might be some in this place who are maybe have never experienced any of this, or maybe have just kind of waffled and wandered and 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 just seem a little out of sorts. And this morning, whether it's a first time or just kind of a a new time, if that's you today and you're saying, you know what, I do want to experience this. I do want to come to know Jesus in this way. I want to have this fellowship and relationship with him. If that's you, maybe it's in, again, for the first time or you're just renewing that. If you just want to slip up your hand with every head bowed and every eye closed, just to say, that's me this morning, whether it's in here or in the comfort of your home as you're watching, that's you this morning. So Lord, for those who may be just experiencing that this morning and just saying, that's for me, I want to renew or I want to begin anew this life with you. Would you just confirm that in their hearts and help them, Lord, to continue to seek you and abide with you. We thank you, Lord, that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. If you did make that commitment this morning, we would love for you to just tell someone about it, just to confirm that in your own heart and mind. So if it's it's your neighbor next to you, uh, sitting next to you, whether it's here or on your couch, or if you want to talk to one of us, we would love to know. We'd love to help you along your way. So I'm going to pray a benediction, and then we're going to dismiss with a couple of quick things. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord make and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Hallelujah.